Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You will find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host. I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Well, we are going to cover in this conversation is the brain, specifically neuroscience. I'm a big fan of neuroscience, so when we had the opportunity to do this conversation, I got really excited. What it's about is COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic adaptation and planning via neuroscience. Now, that may sound like, whoa, that's like a PhD dissertation. But what it really comes down to is how to apply neuroscience and the function of the human brain to adapt to any sort of crisis situation, pandemic situation, anything that you've seen happen recently as it happens. And to guide us through that, we have with us Dr. Gleb Sapersky, and I'm very excited for you to meet him. Dr. Gleb earned his PhD in the history of behavioral science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, his MA at Harvard University, and his BA at New York University. He lives in and travels from Columbus, Ohio. In his free time, he enjoys tennis, hiking, and playing with his two cats. I have two cats as well, so a Laurel Files Unite. And most importantly, he makes sure to spend abundant quality time with his wife to avoid disasters in his personal life. Dr. Gleb, come on in, the weather's fine. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yes, indeed, the weather's fine. Really appreciate being here. All right. So what we like to do here at Business Creators Radio is just take a quick step back. I imagine at this point we have some people opening separate browser tabs, binging the Yahoo out of the Googles to discover Dr. Gleb Stapersky, and that's spelled G-L-E-B-T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. For those of you who are looking to type that into a separate tab and get to know more about the man right now. Since we have him here, let's ask him. Gleb, Tell us a little bit more about your personal journey. What's actually brought you here to serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and making a difference for your community market and audience? Well, what actually brought me here was a journey that started in my childhood. When I was a kid, my parents, like pretty much everyone's parents, told them to, you know, when you want to make a decision, go with your gut, trust your intuition, follow your heart. So I thought that they were right initially, but then I saw my parents making some pretty bad decisions. So for example, my mom liked to buy nice clothing, so she'd go out and buy a $100 sweater. And my dad was kind of a cheapskate, so he, when she'd return, he'd yell at her and say, no sweater should be worth over $20. And then they'd go at it. She, she'd bring up past hurts, he'd bring up past hurts, and they'd fight and they'd have conflicts. And that hurt me as a kid, seeing my parents have conflicts, 
But just as bad was the fact that, you know, their decisions to have these conflicts, have these conversations, have these tensions, didn't change their behavior. My mom kept buying the clothing, my dad kept yelling at her, and they kept having other conflicts. And, you know, I was hoping that somebody would sit me down and say, hey, kiddo, here's how you make good decisions, here's how you make bad ones, when I got to elementary school. But that didn't happen. Didn't happen in middle school, didn't happen in high school. I was shocked that it didn't happen in college. So it didn't happen in business school. So I decided to study this topic on my own. How do we make decisions? How do we manage risks? And how do we avoid those disastrous decisions that I saw my parents suffer? But not only my parents, because I was born in 81, so I grew up, I came of age around the time of the dot-com boom, when in 1999, when I was 18, when tech leaders were partying like it's 1999 for those companies <laughs> like you know, Webvan, Boo.com, Pets.com. Well, guess what? All those companies went bust just a couple of years later when I was 21. And you know, the tech leaders who were praised as the heroes of the industry and the best decision makers in the Wall Street Journal in 1999 were now the zeros in 2001, 2002. Talk about business creation and business destruction, right? right. So I decided that, hey, I want to learn about this. Why is nobody actually uh. doing the right thing? Clearly, these titans of industry and brilliant decision makers don't know what they're talking about. So I decided to study decision making. How do we make decisions? How do we manage risks? And that's how I became a coach, consultant, and trainer. So I've spent the last 20 years doing that, and I run a six-people company now called Disaster Avoidance Experts, doing consulting, coaching, and training in risk management, decision-making, strategic planning, and disaster avoidance. And that's one aspect of what I do. But yeah. I pretty quickly decide, discovered early onward in studying decision-making that there's very little quality information out there besides go with your gut and follow your intuitions, which is not quality at all. It's pretty crappy. <laughs> so I had to go into academia to actually study this stuff. It's going to dry academic tomes and articles, read about the neuroscience. How does our brain work? Why do we make decisions the way we do? How do we make decisions? What drives us to make our decisions? Right. So I studied that and it's specifically behavioral economics. How do we make decisions in economic situations and how do we behave there? We're not nearly as rational as classical economics would have you believe. So. That's how I've been, well, that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. And I spent 15 years academia, 20 years consulting, coaching, and training. And I wrote this new book, Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic. Pretty quickly, as I saw my clients who are trying to adapt to the COVID-19 situation, doing some pretty problematic behaviors initially without my guidance because of the natural way that we are wired to make bad decisions about slow moving train wrecks, those high impact, slow moving disasters, low probability disasters like COVID-19. We made the conscious decision years ago to, uh, for the Business Creators Radio Show to be an audio only show. Uh, one of the reasons was I didn't want to have to have to be in a certain place at a certain time to do these interviews. Location flexibility is one of my core values and one of the things that is extremely important to me. I'm more concerned about that than having a pretty backdrop and having a video and all that. So what you guys didn't see is how I was dancing around raising the roof as you were sharing some of that stuff. <laughs> and I want to bring up something else. And the Business Creators Radio Show, our episodes are also up to an hour long because we discover things at times how 
things that may seem tangential or things that may seem unrelated are actually very related. And if I was trying to do this in 20 minutes and just do a Q&A format with you, we would miss some of the most exciting things. Some of our listeners love when I just completely spaz out. Um, <laughs> that's unlikely to happen this time because this is a little bit more of an academic type interview, which is great. But I will share a couple things that struck me as you were telling your story. Uh, Gleb, you shared how your mother would buy expensive clothes and your dad would yell at her for doing so. And it would be back and forth and around and around. And then she's still going out buying $200 sweaters and your dad's still freaking out. Did I hear that? Yep. Okay. Okay. So I've uh, had clients who've done work in areas like residence repatterning. And I've had a couple who deal with inherited trauma and past life experiences. It is very likely that your parents were having the exact same arguments that their great-grandparents were having for the exact same reasons and not even knowing it. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I totally know what you're talking about. It might right. well be that they were taught this patterns from their cultural heritage. Yeah. yeah, and in some of my episodes, I've gotten really vulnerable and shared things from my own childhood where, um, I, you know, things that some, in a couple of cases involving my own parents and family members. And mm. while at first the things I say make people say, holy, he, he said that? The idea is you pause and then you wait for the development where I share that we are as good as the information we were given. And that becomes wired into our brains. So the same way that your parents are probably having the same argument that their great grandparents were having for the same reasons and not realizing that because the patterns are so subtle. I think that ties into neuroscience and you may agree mm-hmm. or disagree with that. And we'll about, we're about to disambiguate it. Um, like I've, I've shared stories about uh, how uh, my parents were so obsessed with how badly I was doing in mathematics that, uh, that uh, they couldn't see in some cases, the brilliance that I was doing in other areas of study. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think maybe they did see it. Maybe it was my perception that they didn't see it. I don't know. Um, I mean, looking back as an adult and through the lens of understanding neuroscience, resonance repatterning, uh, inherited traumas, family patterns, and things like that, I can see it objectively. Uh, Mm -hmm. Here's something that a lot of people deal with. And when I run this scenario by somebody, Gleb, have you ever... um, visited your grandmother's house or your grandfather's house and they absolutely insisted that you take leftovers from dinner and if you did <laughs> and if you didn't they got offended and said what you hate my food oh definitely yes so you uh, yeah, yeah, you're like number your person like 500 that has shared that exact same story and 99 out of 100 cases it's because your grandparents or your great-grandparents experienced such severe poverty, they relied on handouts from others just to survive. So when your grandmother or whoever was freaking out on you uh, because you didn't want to take leftovers home with you just because you didn't want the leftovers, and they assumed, well, what, you hate my food? Well, you just didn't know. You just didn't want to take the leftovers. It's because at a subconscious level, based on the patterns that come down through generations and become wired into the brain as a result of that, they were afraid you'd starve to death. Mm. Yeah, that may well be. So the neuroscience on this topic was definitely helpful for me, learning about the neuroscience and breaking patterns, what's called in neuroscience cached patterns. 
in order to formulate a much better relationship with my wife than I have with my parents, because, you know, I do not want the same sort of arguments. And it's very tempting yeah. to have the same sort of arguments. Oh, it and, is. Uh, that's not definitely not something I want to have in my relationship. But that yeah. takes a lot of effort. That takes a lot of not intuitive effort because your intuitions are to repeat the same thing that your parents taught you. Mm -hmm. And it's very, it feels very comfortable and it feels very right, but it's also very wrong if you want to have the right and the best relationship. And that's part of what I talk about in my book and my brother work on addressing cognitive biases, these dangerous judgment errors that come from how our brain is wired. Our brain yeah. is actually not wired for the modern environment. It's wired for the savanna environment. That's what our gut intuitions, that's what our reactions are wired for. In the savanna environment, it was a great idea to repeat the same thing that your parents were doing because in your environment was not changing. It yes. was really very similar. So it was good to repeat the same things. We got that those instincts wired into us. But trying to you know, we were hunters and gatherers and foragers living in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people. Our main freight reflex was the fight or flight response. That was great for that savannah environment when we were dealing with saber-toothed tigers, had to jump at 100 shadows to get away from a saber-toothed tiger. Might have heard of it as a saber-toothed tiger response. Not a good fit for the modern environment. That's not what the modern environment is for. But unfortunately, we still repeat these patterns. We still have these instincts. We still have these gut reactions. And we don't realize that we need to interrupt these patterns and see if they serve us in the modern civilized world instead of that hunter-gatherer primitive savage world or even the world of, you know, 50 years ago. I mean, your grandma didn't have the internet. Your grandma, you know, your grandpa didn't have, a, you know, a smartphone. The kind of patterns that served our parents and that we had ingrained in us when we were children don't serve us well right now in many ways but we don't question them we don't step back and see how do our patterns how do our instincts how do our intuitions serve us well and where they don't serve us well we don't change what we need to change and that's part of what my work is about figuring out where we need to change in order to make the right decisions going forward yeah see um and just you know Linking to that and then linking just one last time to my share after you told your story is when we look at breaking patterns that get passed down through the generations, we recognize how things become wired into the brain through neuroscience and what have you. Uh, this is where genealogy studies, uh, charting your ancestors, knowing your ancestor stories, and also facing head on through an objective view, uh, those traumatic events of your childhood when your parents were unduly mean to you or there was some conflict in your family. Now, one tendency we sometimes see is, well, that happened. Now let's just sweep it under the rug. And then you notice mm. it keeps happening over and over again. Then you end up doing it to your own kids and so on and so forth. And you feel rotten about it uh, because there's a pattern of, well, that happens. And then we just set it aside because that was yesterday. Well, if it was yesterday and you don't deal with it, it's going to be tomorrow, too. Mm -hmm. So being able to look at this stuff, just as you shared, uh, and recognize things like patterns, recognize how things become wired. Uh, as you said yourself, we're living in a modern world, and we're, we have instincts and functions in our brain that are related to the savanna-type environment, which was tribal and very survival-based. Yeah, our reactions are going to be a little bit off. <laughs> exactly. So so let's so let's get into some of this stuff here. There's a few points you really wanted to cover that you outlined for me, and I want to get through those in turn. The first is uh, how do we identify what our and this comes 
to the COVID thing. How do we identify where our current reaction to the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic might be oriented excessively toward a short-term and or optimistic outlook? That's really important to realize because our reactions to the pandemic are informed by the fight or flight response. That's our main response to threats. And we need to realize that's how many people responded to COVID-19. That was a bad problem. Now, a lot of people had the response of the flight response. They flew, they ignored COVID-19 or they said it's nothing worse than a common cold. It's a hoax. It's nothing you know serious. They flew. That's a flight response. They flew from the information. It's fleeing from the real, truth of reality. So many people do that. And so many people, unfortunately, in business settings do that. And they did that as well. I mean, there was a study showing that of all CEOs who are fired, there was a study of 1,087 board members who fired the chief executive officers. And the study showed that of the chief executives who were fired, 23%, so over a fifth, were fired for denialism, denying negative truth about reality. So it doesn't happen only in personal settings. Private life happens in business life all the time, denying reality. That's, so that's the fleeing from information. That's the flight response. Another type of response is the fight response. So COVID-19 and personal life, so many people went and you know got toilet paper, rolls and rolls of toilet paper, and got canned food that they're never going to eat because it's not the kind of thing that they eat. And they got panicked. So it was panic shopping. You also saw that in business where people responded by turning to their business continuity plans and disaster preparedness plans. Those, I mean, I'm someone who runs a company called Disaster Avoidance Experts, right? I make disaster avoidance and disaster preparedness and business continuity plans all the time. Those are great for situations like a blizzard or situations like a flood, like when Houston was flooded. That's a one to two week interruption in your business. That's what a business continuity plan is for. It's not for a major disruptor like COVID-19. That's like Houston was flooded and it stayed flooded and you're trying to get to your work in a car in the context of a flood when what you need is a canoe. You need to change your business continuity plan thoroughly. You can't function in emergency mode. You need, this, you need to realize this is not a sprint, it's a marathon to adapt and plan to the new abnormal in which we live in right now. So if you have not done that, if you're either fleeing from the information or if you're seeing people flee from information, or if you're functioning as though everything is back to normal right now as you know states are opening up and everything is fine, you're living in trying to get back to normal. You need to realize we'll never go back to January 2020. Never. That is not a reality that is part of our future because COVID-19 is around. It will keep impacting us going forward in many different ways. And you need to adapt your plans, whether your business continuity plan or your reopening plan to the new abnormal. So many people haven't done that. They're just trying to get back to normal or they're trying to live with their business continuity plan as though that that's what they should do. So those are signs that you're being too short-term oriented and you're falling into what's called the normalcy bias. The normalcy bias is one of these dangerous judgment errors, cognitive biases that come from how our brain is wired. We tend to see the future as being much like today. That's our intuition. And that was great for the Savannah environment when that was true, that the future was going to be mostly like today. But it's not the case right now. But if you think back to your business, uh, to yourself, you'll think that, hey, yourself in five years from now, you probably imagine 
a little bit of a changed version of yourself, maybe a little smarter, wiser, and more gray-headed. But if you think back to yourself five years ago, you'll realize what a different person you were in so many different ways. However, we don't realize that in five years, we'll probably be just as different as we were five years ago. Yeah. And that's something that you don't realize, but that's something that is the reality of the situation. In the same way, we suffer from the normalcy bias about our environment. Our environment will be very different, and we greatly underestimate the impact and the change in our environment, especially with major disruptors like COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, and uh, I, I have a few pithy comments on that. First of all, is one of the debates is, you know, well, how fast should we reopen and things like that? I personally, I will share this. Uh, I'm in favor of a rapid reopening with the provision that we recognize that this virus is here to stay. Like a lot of mm -hmm. illnesses that have come, uh, even once we figure out treatments, once we figure out mitigation strategies, once we figure out, in some cases, vaccinations, it's always going to be here. We can't cower in our homes and live in a, in a fantasy make-believe life over Zoom forever. We gotta, we gotta move forward. We gotta have businesses open. We gotta have people getting back to now, you know, going back to your reference to the normalcy bias, they might say going back to our normal lives. And then there's a debate over whether the phrase new normal is a good thing or a bad thing. And what I'm getting out of what you shared with us so far, Gleb, is simply that we are in a good situation when we recognize that situations are fluid. Uh, I also immediately thought of, you know, how you're on Facebook and you get that, those memory notifications of what you posted five years ago. <laughs> and sometimes you look at that and, all right, listeners, I said, I said, I, I said, I wouldn't drop any here on this one, but I lied. All right, here it comes. You look at that, that notification, which you posted for five years ago and you say, holy hell, what? I said that? <laughs> and it go, and it go and it goes back to uh, recognizing the counter, I believe, of the normalcy viruses. Five years ago, that would have been normal for you. Mm Here, -hmm. five years later, with subsequent learning, subsequent discoveries, subsequent experiences, your normal is different. So it's perfectly okay for. Uh, I mean, if you want to use the phrase "new normal," that's fine. Uh, if that if that helps you identify for yourself that what happens post past post-pandemic will never be the same as what it was pre-pandemic. And I would also argue at the same time, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's important. I think that's really insightful. The important key uh, aspect of what we're talking about here is, not, is to not open up or stop opening up. It is very important to go forward in your business. But what I see so many people getting wrong is when they use the phrase the new normal. So one of these cognitive biases is called framing. Framing is about how you frame reality, what perspective you take on it. So that helps inform your thinking and your actions. Most importantly, of course, for business leaders, their actions, their business decisions going forward. If you use the phrase the new normal, you will try to go back to, to January 2020. That's almost certain. I've seen so many people try to go back to January 2020. That is not realistic. That is not what you should be doing. 
I much prefer the phrase, and this is why my book is titled, you know, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic. You should use uh -huh. the phrase the abnormal to signify to yourself, to frame to yourself and to everybody else in your business and your business collaborators that we're not going to back, go back to January 2020. The virus is indeed still around. COVID-19, we've seen states reopening and cases ticking up. You need to realize what is the future holding for you. The cases ticking up real in, indicates that eventually states, number of states, number of regions, especially ones with a bigger outbreak, will approach a stage where hospitals will be overwhelmed. And politicians, before allowing that to happen, will have another series of shutdowns. If you're not planning for that, you're simply foolish. Because if you look at that, what happened in New York City, no politician almost no politician, let's be honest, if they're up for re-election, can afford for themselves to have the bodies and refrigerated trucks outside of hospitals. That just looks horrible on TV, regardless of how you feel morally about it. Because what you see, what you have, if you look at the research on COVID-19, you have the death rates jumping by an order of magnitude from 0.5 to 1%, which is the kind of the various ranges, to about 5 to 10% when people, when hospitals, when medical systems get overwhelmed. So what we're yeah. facing is indeed in the when the second wave hits and which was pretty inevitable in october november december of next year is another round of restrictions and if you're not planning for that if you're not preparing for that if you're not making a plan for what you will do with your business and how you will outcompete your competition in that context then you're just deluding yourself and you're setting yourself up for failure there's a reason yeah. about half of all small businesses fail within the first five years three quarters fail within the first 15 years and one of the biggest reasons is they're way too optimistic not making a long-term plan for the shifts in our broader context that are going to happen. Instead, what you need to do is figure out and plan for yourself what are going to be the social shifts, the economic shifts, the health shifts that accompany COVID-19, our new abnormal, and you want to get ahead of them so that you are in a good position to take advantage of the situation, including when your competitors fail so that you can successfully seize market share. There's an elephant in the room here right now that I'm just going. I'm gonna I'm gonna point him out right now and woo. Okay, uh, we have folks who believe that the coronavirus thing was overblown, and here's some anecdotal evidence. I, me personally, mm -hmm. I know, and I keep track of this. I know 12 people who I believe had the COVID before we knew we were supposed to be caring about it. Uh, mm -hmm. When I look back to like December 2019, January 2020, I hear story after story of somebody who said, yeah, right around that time, I had this really weird illness. My doc couldn't tell me what it was. I got several tests done. All I know is I was tired all the time. I had a fever. I had real difficulty breathing like I'd never experienced before in my life. Uh, they didn't have anything to give me to treat it. But then after three weeks, it sort of went away. I keep mm -hmm. hearing that story over and over and over. I hear people that say they thought they had the flu, and uh, in light of what we've learned to, you know, subsequently, they went and had antibody tests done, and the test came back and said, yep, you had the bug. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that uh, when, you know, before we knew we were supposed to be concerned about this, I know two people personally who I uh, had physical contact with on an almost daily basis, like handshaking and sitting close to them and things like that. Uh, when I look back on it, I, I am absolutely certain they had the full-blown Rona. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I didn't get it. And most of the people around them didn't get it. So when you hear stuff like that, and you know that many people also have their stories like that, then you think, wait, was this in fact a hoax? Was mm -hmm. this some sort of propaganda thing? Was this some sort of intentional disruption? Because when you have that type of anecdotal evidence, you have that come out and you can't entirely discount it because there is a lot of circumstantial evidence that supports those theories. You can't call them conspiracy mm -hmm. theories if you have that much evidence. Uh, you may disagree with it. And if you disagree with it because you're citing other levels of science and, and some of the things that you cited, that's fine too. Um, I'd like to get all, I like to get all those opinions out there so we can find out as best we can what really happened. Let me get to my sure. point here if we move on to your next question. Uh, you pointed out the idea of the new abnormal instead of the new normal and how businesses that are smart need to be thinking ahead. You're saying that it pretty much is what I heard you say, you know, I may be incorrect is it's almost a lock that we're going to go through this again, mm -hmm. whether you believe we will, or whether you believe this whole thing was some sort of political machination uh, that was designed for a specific purpose, whatever you believe, think about the fact that regardless of what did or didn't happen, it did cause massive business disruption. And do you have a plan for a similar business disruption? This is where you and I come together and agree that yes, you damn well be looking at the new abnormal and you better have a plan because you can look at any set of numbers and say it is statistically highly likely Maybe we go through another round of COVID. Maybe there's a different bug, or maybe there's some other kind of disruption that results in business closures. Yeah, so let's, so two points there that I want to make sure to address. There's various, certainly various information about COVID-19 out there. What we can point out and very clearly is the evidence of our eyes and the, in terms of the numbers of people dead. So there's over 100,000 people dead, yeah. very clearly. And we have seen, I would be surprised if people haven't seen the bodies outside of New York City hospitals. Well, Those, I, th I think we've all seen it. I don't think we disagree yes. with on that. So clearly there's a disease there. Yeah. Clearly there's a serious situation that happened in New York. And we can pretty much guarantee that if other states have a situation, you know, if Atlanta, if Columbus, if Los Angeles, you know, if Chicago, if uh, Boise, Idaho has that sort of situation of bodies in the refrigerated trucks outside of hospitals, politicians will shut down. The, there will be shutdowns. There will be restrictions. There will be, you know, to prevent this sort of thing from keeping happening. And we know that deaths have gone down in New York City and that New York State in general as a result of these shutdowns. We know that 100,000, over 100,000 people by now have died from COVID-19, right? So those, at least those facts are clear and we can kind of disagree on the other things, but those facts are clear. That's 100,000 people. And the unfortunate thing is, and terrible thing is, it's not over in any way or shape or form. We see that people keep dying at about the same rate, a little bit higher now that states are reopening. So we see people dying at a rate of about 1,000 people a day. So think about what that means, 1,000 people a day. Where will we be in, in 30 days, in a month? There'll be 30,000 more people dead. In 100 days, in, in one quarter, you know, next quarter, yeah. 100,000 more people will die. So over a year, there'll be 300,000 deaths. And if we keep the current rates, there's no change in the rates. So we right. know that people are dying at a huge rate. So that's yeah. 
terrible and that's horrible. And we, regardless again of your moral perspective on this, we know that businesses will be closed if there will be shutdowns, if there's a major outbreak and COVID-19 based on a lot of science is definitely more transmissible when it's colder weather. So that's going to be pretty bad for us. That is what you need to be aware of. And that is what you need to plan for, regardless of how, how you perceive the politics of this and whatever you perceive the politicians to be doing. You need to be prepared for the future of shutdowns and restrictions, these waves of restrictions, followed by lessening of cases as happened in New York and happened in states around the country, then loosening of restrictions. So what will probably happen is, in, depending on when the outbreak hits, in November, or December, January, you'll have restrictions. Then you'll have loosenings in a, in, in a few weeks or in a couple of months, depending. And then you'll have eventual restrictions again until vaccine. And we won't have a vaccine that's widely available until summer of 2021. And that's, you know, then you have to produce the vaccine, distribute it, get it to vaccination. So that's probably going to take six to 12 months. So that's pushing us into 2022. If you are not preparing for waves of restrictions and disruptions, you're in a lot of trouble. And you're not thinking about the financial situation. So for example, commercial real estate will be an industry that will be very badly hit. It's already starting to be badly hit. It will be much hit much worse than people think currently perceive it to be hit. If you're not thinking about the damage to, let's say, insurance industry, I mean, there's going to be massive lawsuits. We already see those happening. There's you know, no, no doubt about it. Massive lawsuits, damage to insurance industry will be huge. Obviously, leisure, obviously, tourism, obviously, travel, in-person interactions. There's so many industries that are going to be damaged. But that's kind of the negatives. You will need to be savvy and think about the positives, how you can take advantage of the situation, how you can. So, for example, right now I'm having my clients go and describe the steps they have taken to be pandemic proof to their potential prospects, to people they would like to work with who are currently working with their competitors. And they're saying, hey, you know, if my competitor happens to stumble and if the pandemic is worse than you know, they have, they think it is, here are steps A through Z that I've taken to be pandemic proof. And here's my list, uh, here uh, is what I'm doing. You can call on me if you happen to need my services. That will put you in a brilliant position in those six months when the next wave of the pandemic of COVID-19 comes around and there will be restrictions, your competitor stumbles, you'll be in a much better position to take advantage of the situation. And this is just one out of dozens of ways, hundreds of ways you can position yourself to be in a savvy spot when things will get worse. Yeah, and what I want to add to the points that I w was making, uh, I'm not, I, I try not to be clear exactly where I fall uh, within that debate. I'm actually somewhere in the middle of it. Uh, somewhere, I don't know myself exactly where. But the point being is, if you uh, look at your dozen or so friends who you are certain had this bug, even before we knew we were supposed to be looking at it, uh, and you're of the belief that oh, well, they're all walking around just fine today. We probably could have gotten through this uh, without doing all this shutdown business. Well, here's what you have to bear in mind is uh, it's not the individual person who really decides whether things get shut mm -hmm. down. Uh, so it's going to happen regardless of that belief if it happens. And even if it doesn't, and even if having learned, you know, you hope, 
that they learned the lessons for how they screwed up the shutdowns this time mm -hmm. and they do it better next time. Cause I, I could do, I could do 20 interviews in 20 hours on how badly they, yeah. Candidly, candidly fucked up the shutdowns and, yeah. and, may, and caused a lot more problems than they should have. Even if they do them intelligently next time, they're still going to happen. So, so you have to look at your own business, your own career, your own trajectory, and look at how you can intelligently be prepared to make the necessary pivots so you keep moving forward, even as those sharp curves in the road occur. I think that's really insightful. And what you have to realize when you're looking at your f circle of 12 friends is they are probably not uh, people who live in nursing homes. They're probably not people who have various forms of underlying conditions. Those are the yep. people who tend to die at a much higher rate. So the problem with folks who are looking at their circle is that you're likely walking around and hanging out with people who are all pretty healthy and who are less susceptible to COVID-19 than the people who tend to die at a much higher rate. I'm going to say of the, of the of the sample of 12 that I'm aware of, uh, the younger, healthier, less classified as vulnerable applies to, off the top of my head, about 8 out of 12. Mm -hmm. I am telling you that all 12 of them are standing around walking today. Uh, what we also know is that the nature of going through that virus can lead to respiratory and other issues down the road. So, uh, you, know, true, so yeah, you, don't necessarily, you don't necessarily come out on the back end 100%. There could be some stuff lingering under there. It's like malaria. It keeps coming back. And that's actually the case with my dad. So he's 79. He lives yeah. in New York City. And he got something that uh, about three months ago that very likely looked like COVID-19. That was a time when we had almost no tests, unfortunately, yeah. due to freaking government incompetence. And yeah. uh, the go and he wasn't able to get a test, but he had he was I mean he's seventy nine definitely in that category. He had very much shortness of breath, loss of appetite, loss of smell, the kind of things associated with COVID nineteen. My mom, fortunately, she's seventy. She was taking care of him. She has medical training, so she was able to take steps that were able to keep him from getting pneumonia, which is the major danger associated with COVID nineteen. So he was really on and off, and he was very close to going to the hospital. But yeah. the hospitals that were just carrying people out in body bags. So my mom really didn't want to take him there. So he eventually he's on the road to recovery, but still it's three months later and he is yeah. far from back to his old self. He still has a lot of breath issues. He's still struggling with serious lung damage. So yeah, yeah. it's pretty bad. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and I'm not, I want to be clear, I'm not denying this is a serious thing. I'm just saying that, the, that based on a lot of mm -hmm. evidence, a lot, you know, some of which is uh, hard evidence, some of which is anecdotal evidence, there is plenty of room for debate on whether we should have shut down and how mm -hmm. we should have shut down and everything else. But the oh, fact definitely. is, but I think what we can agree on regardless is it happened. There's mm -hmm. a very good chance something like that will happen again, maybe for the yep. same reason, maybe for a different reason. And what I think this revealed two things with businesses. Number one, um, those that were able to pivot. So they had certain things going for them and those that emerged as being the truly essential businesses uh i mm. mean uh, the fact i mean uh, you know there was a there was a joke uh there was a joke of you know it's a meme i see that's sort of a joke but i think it's also very um telling is hey you know if you if you think this is no big deal you go back you know you know, you, you, you go back to work. And uh, then the response to it is, I'm already back at work. I'm one of those essential workers you uh, watch, uh, you, that you condemn from your couch. 
<laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, so again, there's no one size fits all. And I think mm -hmm. it's going to be a very personal thing. And it's going to be a very individual thing for companies and businesses. So what are some techniques that a person or organization would have you can evaluate and shift your career trajectory, professional development and business model to adapt and plan effectively for the pandemic. And I wanna just point out the wording of that question and plan effectively for the pandemic, which means take a forward view through the new abnormal. So that are, you wanna be thinking about your internal organizational model and your external organizational model. These are the two things you want to be thinking about. And what you want to orient toward is having as much virtual interactions as possible. That's going to be the key. There are so many businesses that are that have discovered, and a lot of my clients have discovered, that when they went home, they were scared. I'll be honest. A number of my clients were scared that uh, their workers would be much less productive. They wouldn't be able to get their business done when they're working from home. Well, guess what? They discovered that their workers were great. They, they were able to collaborate effectively at home once they made a number of uh, changes to how they were making sure that their workers functioned to effectively. And a number of other businesses tried to go on using the same techniques that they used before to manage their workers and manage their internal productivity, and they failed in many ways. So you want to be thinking about how to adapt effectively to virtual teams, virtual collaboration. One of the biggest problems that I see is effective communication. Communication in the office happens naturally, face to face, you know, you see each other's body language, you see how people's faces look, you see anxiety, worry, you can hear the tone of voice, right? When it's, I say, I think Michael should take that project, or I say, I think Michael should take that project, those two sentences mean very different things. But when you're working virtually, you're overwhelmingly using collaboration software like Slack or Microsoft Teams or Trello or Asana or stuff like this. That's very textual. You lose a lot of communication when you do that. You lose a lot of communication nuances, subtones, things that really indicate what you're saying. You And that way is something you need to train your people for. You need to train them on how to communicate effectively in virtual settings. That's something that helped a lot of my clients. That's something I strongly encourage people to do. Another area that people don't think about is noticing and solving problems. When you're in the office, it's very natural and intuitive to just notice problems. You walk around again, you see people who are disengaged, you see tensions, and you can address them in the moment. Much harder to do in virtual settings. And that's something you need to train people on how to effectively notice and address problems. Then another area related to that is cultivating trust in the first place. In the office environment, it's pretty easy to cultivate trust because you just connect with people, you talk about your kids, your you know, local sports ball game, your vacation plans. That's not something that happens naturally and intuitively in virtual teams. And this is not something, this is not about training and professional development. This is about creating venues of how do you cultivate trust effectively. And finally, I want to highlight accountability. And there is a certain uh, accountability is much easier in office settings where you just come by with someone, you see what they're doing, you check in with them, hey, how's it going? And also you can have peer-to-peer -peer accountability. You can pop into Bob's office and say, hey, Bob, where's that report you promised me? Well, that doesn't happen naturally in virtual interactions. You need to create deliberate institutions to ensure that these sorts of things happen. And these are the internal business models. We can talk separately about external service delivery and addressing external interactions. But internally, these are the things that you need to do to function effectively in virtual teams.
Yeah. Um, in my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. Uh, there's a couple things that I uh, reference when it comes to things like making sure projects get done, making sure deadlines get hit, making sure that interaction happens, particularly when people are working virtu virtually and in many cases asynchronously. Uh, mm -hmm. Point number one is when you – point number one is to actually – Ask people to do things that you're going to need them to do and to do proper follow-up and feedback on that because if it's – and I've seen this happen in organizations where it seems like everything that anybody does has to be put into some sort of review and approval queue and then nothing ever gets reviewed, nothing ever gets approved, and then maybe six weeks later they, say, they get that quote-unquote feedback in the form of, um, I don't like it, do something else. They're going, <laughs> they're going to stop – caring what they will do is they will find other opportunities if they're an entrepreneur serving multiple clients they will change their focus to other clients if they are on a career path they may start looking for a different employer or a transfer to a different department because people have a need when they create something to see it put into action i'll tell you the kind of client that i love working with is the one where i'll develop something for them and they'll put it into action so fast, they don't even get back to me and say, wow, that's awesome, thank you. They, they, I just see that they're using it. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. wow, that's great. But then I caution them that I say, please be aware that what I gave you was not the final product. If uh, there, uh, I need you to review these things carefully and let me know what was great about them and what needed to be adjusted differently. If you go make little adjustments on your own and you don't tell me, you're going to be making those same little adjustments over and over and over again and then wondering why, don't, why, I, why I don't get it. Because mm. if you take it and use it, I'm not going to check and see how you use it to that same degree. I'm going to say, yes, another success story. So what I'm, the point is I'm saying look for balance. And then the second way – that I recommend to get deadlines fulfilled and have people take deadlines seriously is to create dependencies. Gleb, there are probably a hundred things on your to-do list that if you get them today, you get them done tomorrow, you get them done next year, whatever. So, uh, because there's, you know, it's like, whatever. I mean, like maybe you're planning to redo your website. Well, in the meantime, your business is still working. And mm -hmm. if you keep using the same website for another year, okay, whatever. It's still on your to-do list. However, if you have somebody else on the team whose responsibility it is to have a new blog post on that website for Friday mm. to coincide with a marketing campaign that's to kick off Friday afternoon and run through that three-day holiday week weekend, and they're counting on Gleb to deliver that, deliver that text for that blog post to the social media implementation team so they have it for Friday morning, Damn right. It doesn't matter if you've done a hundred things on Thursday and it's 1130 at night before you're finally getting to it. You will deliver that article because <laughs> you do not want to be that guy that caused everything to get screwed up. So by creating that dependency, other people are depending on you. It makes you care about getting it done on time. No matter what mountain you have to climb or hill you have to scale, Gleb Sapersky is coming through because he is not, a, he is not somebody who lets people down. Yes, that's an important insight. And it's especially important to realize that 
in virtual teams, that's a little bit harder to do because you actually don't see each other. You don't yeah. see that connection. You know, that person is not nearly as real to you. There's a reason that people have a lot more tensions and conflicts and fights on social media than they would have in real life yeah. you know, because that person is not as real to them. And that is a problem that happens in virtual teams. I've transitioned a number of teams to virtual teams. And this is something that we had to I had to learn to address that something that people don't anticipate happens, but it does happen. So that's something you need to learn about and make sure that you address in advance that the reality, right. keeping each other real and keeping each other human, understanding that, that you know, the other person is a real human being. Yeah, and there are, I think there are ways to do that. Um, oh, yeah. Having regular communication and as far as creating visual dependencies, project management systems where mm -hmm. people can see the task list and they can see that once they check off, I did this, it's going to activate to tell somebody else to do the next thing. And then mm -hmm. if somebody looks at their dashboard in their project management system and they see, oh, I was supposed to do something Friday, but it's still showing as pending. Why wasn't that released to me? Oh, I didn't get that article. Gleb, dude, you owe me an article. <laughs> or, or, if that, or if somebody comes down on that person saying, why didn't that campaign get started? Uh-oh, what happened to the article? So to me, it's visualization. And, I, mm -hmm. and, and one way, of course, as I just said, is creating maps using project management systems so people can see the dependencies. And knowing if they don't come through on X, Y gets messed up and then Z gets messed up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Another thing is having regular touch points. Uh, it's been my recommendation, it's something I do in my business, that you have a weekly conversation with the people who are most important to you. Mm -hmm. Reason being is if you have that conversation once a week, and sometimes it's a five minute call, sometimes it's a one hour call. You schedule an hour and it takes as long as it takes. That way, if you have uh, ideas you want to kick back and forth or you need to get into something in detail, you have that space to do it. So it's not like constant phone calls and IMs and emails <laughs> and everything else. Uh, another, you know, another thing that you know, I work with, because I do work with virtual team development as well, is helping them get out of email hell. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I've had to go to clients and say, oh, yeah. look, I have spent so much time today just going through this avalanche of emails that came from your account since I zeroed out my inbox yesterday evening that I may have to bill you extra because I had to read all this to make sure there wasn't something that pertains to me. So what do we do about this? And of course, the answer is project management systems, uh, getting smart about who we copy on emails and knowing that just because you received an email doesn't mean you need to respond to it. Just like, just because your phone rings doesn't mean you have to answer it. Just because you got an email doesn't mean you have to respond to it. Yeah. And if you start from that extreme position, it gives you the beginning of a framework to recognize how you spend your time in a way that's valuable for getting stuff done and valuable for building relationships. Because just like some phone calls don't need to be answered, some emails don't need to be answered. <laughs> if you start with that premise, now you can more clearly see which ones do need the response and how that response should come. That's been my experience. I think that's really an important insight. Actually, with the email hell, I make sure to make, to transition my clients to a work management system. Yeah. So something like Slack, Microsoft Teams, Trello, Asana, others 
that address and prevent the need for emails. Because what you do is you have, whether on Trello, you have cards and you have comments on the cards. You see what other people are commenting. You have many less emails, much easier. But anyway, I think the points you made are really important for collaboration. I'm just going to add about the making each other human to each other. Those things that I found really helpful are, I'm going to share two things. One for making human to each other. One is if you are Trello, Asana, whatever, all of those enable teams to have a separate venue for themselves. And there's, let's say, a channel in Microsoft Teams for a team with a, a manager and seven reports. So what I what we have do what we have is that each person who signs on at work in the morning, they share what's going on with them, something that a team member doesn't know about them, so something a fun, fun fact, something that's going on in their personal life, and what they're planning to work on with that day, and then respond to three people who did the same thing. That creates a sense of humanity that you would, it essentially replaces the water cooler conversation you would have, the break room conversation you would have. And so you keep that sense of humanity, connection going daily, and engagement with each other. And then you yeah. can also share spontaneously whatever you wish freely, not as part of policy, and that provides spontaneity. So you have that obligatory part and the spontaneous part. So that's kind of yeah. staying human to each other. Now about the accountability part, I want to make sure to highlight that. How do you create accountability? So the work management flow structure is great. In addition to that, I strongly recommend that folks create a reporting structure where they write out a report of what they did for the week and what with their accomplishments were, top accomplishments, and also tag whoever they helped during that week or whoever they think can use uh, can be perform better in collaborating with them and give it to their team report to the report to the team leader that creates accountability both up the chain of command and peer-to-peer -peer accountability and that yeah. i find is incredibly helpful to make sure that people collaborate effectively together and stay accountable yeah, I agree with all those. And, I was, I, and there's one other point that I realized I needed to make is you know, going along with the idea of having the one-on-one um, -on -one meetings with the people who matter most to you. If you have a work group, uh, it's helpful if you have a meeting once a week with them. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, that also cuts down on, on the email hell and the back and forth and the, and the phone calls and the IMs and everything else uh, 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 <laughs> so that you can stay focused on work. And I want to develop one other thing is with my clients to do that, I sometimes get feedback from some of the people who attend the calls to say, you know, you, you have us submit these reports about our activities before the meetings so that we can read them in advance so we're not listening to people talk for the sake of talking the whole time. And then I come to these meetings and all we do is tell stories with each other. And I say, yeah, pretty much because the purpose of bringing people together once a week is as much to collate information is to give us a chance to see each other as humans. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. not only does just us coming together once a week and having the processes that we do through our system help to reduce the need for, you know, huddles and phone calls and IMs and emails. It also, because you, we begin to see each other as human beings it becomes easier for us to relate to each other in an asynchronous virtual environment that doesn't have the same personal touch because now we have a sense of who that person is as a human and how to relate to them and vice versa.
Yeah, yeah, that's that's really important. That, that's really insightful. So that's kind of about internal stuff. I want to make sure to, to talk a little bit about external stuff. How do you yeah. adapt to the situation, to the virtual interactions, pandemic, shutdowns, and so on? Yeah, and we, to... yeah, yeah, and I got to let you know, we got about three minutes to do that. Believe it or ah. not, this hour is flown. Go! Oh, that, that, that has been really fun. <laughs> so what you, want to, what you want to think about is how do you cultivate your existing relationships with key stakeholders, whether, of course, your clients, your prospects, your suppliers, government officials, now the stimulus is here, various civic leaders, whoever are your key stakeholders, external stakeholders, you want to be able to cultivate your relationships with them well. And you'll find that especially uh, what I find is salespeople have a lot of difficulty with virtual relationship building. They're so used to in-person relationship building, but you need to give training to all your team in how to cultivate effective external relationships so that's something you need to be thinking about in the context of these disruptions much less travel and so on then you want to be thinking about your external stakeholders who will not be nearly as savvy as you so your external stakeholders a number of them will not be pandemic proof will not prepare for the situation and you need to manage everything from your supply chains to your service providers whatever who will not be nearly as prepared as you to adapt and deal with the pandemic so that's something yeah. i want to make sure that people think about exactly and i and i think those are all very important things especially when it comes to supply chains and i know people yes. that have gotten caught up in the whole supply yeah. chain thing so there is so much more we could cover here and i appreciate you uh getting through that last piece pretty quickly but what i want to do now is i want to turn the stage over to you one more time uh with all this talk of pandemics and neuroscience and the way that we you know dealt with brain functions and relational functions without getting too technical or too academic so that people can see it from the real world. Uh, let's say somebody wants to take this to the next level. How do you help them and uh, how do they get started with that? You mentioned a book, you mentioned some work you do. So tell us how it works. Of course. So the book Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic, available in bookstores everywhere. So you can check that out. Now, if you want to get in touch with me to learn about coaching, consulting, training of various sorts, or just to check out my blogs, video casts, podcasts, all this sort of information available for free or low price things like decision aids, guides, manuals, classes. You can check out disasteravoidanceexperts.com and that's my website against disasteravoidanceexperts.com for a free eight video based course on making the wisest decisions in the context of the pandemic and in business in general. Check out disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. And finally, if you have any questions, connect with me on LinkedIn. Happy to answer questions about things you've heard in this podcast there. Dr. Gleb Sipursky, G-L-E-B-T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y on LinkedIn. I got to say this, uh, anybody who has made it all the way to the end of this and has heard what we've shared back and forth and is not thinking about the new abnormal, Go back, download this episode, listen to it again, and then check out Gleb's video series. Very important. You really need this right now, even if you think you don't, because you think you don't. It will <laughs> open your eyes, and it will put you, if you follow what he says, and you begin thinking these ways, in a much better position if and likely when something like this happens again. And as uh, you know, Gleb and I uh, tend to believe it could happen again this year. So the new abnormal folks and Dr. Gleb Sapersky, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an honor and an education. Thank you so much for inviting me, Adam. It's been a pleasure. All right. Uh, we trust you to enjoy today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. 
check out our previous and our upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.